Alicia, do you know how to take a screenshot of your of Snapchat uh, uh, conversations? I do. So you just... Okay, I don't. That's <laughs> <laughs> the old people who don't know how to do it. All right, David, do you know how to do it? Absolutely not. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> I probably could do it, but it would take a considerable amount of effort, whereas, you know, the younger people is uh, a little more intuitive. Yeah. And I, I know how to do it. All right. All right. Uh, Maury, well, so uh, if you ever get a White House job, you're going down when the archivist comes uh, looking for that uh, uh, because they say, well, you know how to do it. How come you didn't do it? Welcome to episode 266 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And uh, in my usual disclaimer, there's almost no one who actually agrees with the things we're about to say. Um, uh, not our firms, not our clients, not our families. Uh, we're on our own here. Uh, and I'm joined today by Maury Shank, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, uh, by Paul Rosenzweig uh, from Red Branch Consulting and the R Street Institute, by David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, formerly uh, at the Justice Department as head of the National Security Division, and by Alicia Lowe uh, from Harvard Law School, a summer associate in our Washington office, uh, fresh off a uh, tour of duty at uh, CDT. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur on today's program. Uh, uh, let's uh, start, uh, Paul, with um, our update on the Silicon Curtain. Uh, we've had the fun stuff uh, from the point of view of uh, the um, Trump administration, and now we're going to uh, figure out what China is doing in response, and it looks like they've, uh, they've got a few ideas for how, how to make us feel some of the pain that they've been feeling? Well, I think that's absolutely right. Frankly, you know, it's unsurprising, right? We've started a, a contest, and the question is, who's going to win the contest? It's not like China didn't bring some weapons to the battlefield. Maybe we have the stronger ones, but, you know, China is going to add some U.S. companies to an unreliable entities list, which I'm not exactly sure what that means in Chinese law, but it's the equivalent of our own designated entities list. Um, and then probably FedEx is going to go first on that list since FedEx I, is, I, uh, I saw that exactly today. Uh, they Yesterday they announced that FedEx was uh, under suspicion of treating Chinese companies in, in with invidious discrimination or something of that nature. I would strongly suspect that the companies that wind up making that list will be designed uh, with two different goals in mind. One, to advantage Chinese uh, native industries, uh, and the other would be to particularly hurt uh, where Trump's support is strongest, you know, Midwest farmers and the soybean thing reprising. The challenge in the second part is that most of the Silicon Valley people are, are in California, and Trump really almost doesn't care about them, which is why FedEx, I think, got, got the short end of the stick rather than, say, a more hard work against Google or, or, or Facebook or something like that. 
And China and Russia are saying they're also going to see if they can't transition away from Microsoft Windows by developing another operating system. But first, I, I just love the idea that China and Russia are going to work together on an operating system. It's, a, it's going to be a contest to see who, who can put more backdoors in. Uh, uh, and of course, I would have thought that NSA would just love this because even if they didn't want backdoors, there's going to be a generation of drafting of coding errors that will produce flaws in the operating system that can be exploited for years. I think that's absolutely right. Any new operating system is going to start with a lot of gaps and vulnerabilities that, that will shake out over time. It will really be uh, quite delightful for the NSA. Uh, plus, you know, if our own experience with ADA at, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is any indication, you know, purpose-rich code that is government-built will definitely not function as well as uh, private sector-developed code like uh, like Windows or Apple's iOS. Uh, so not only will they give us gaps to exploit, but in the end, they'll probably not work as well. Yeah. So speaking of gaps to exploit, the uh, Europeans really, really, really want gaps to exploit in end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, um, uh, David, uh, uh, what's the latest there? Well, Europe has been ahead of the United States in pushing for so-called extraordinary access for law enforcement and national security authorities to end-to-end -end encrypted communications or even data at rest. Uh, they've been ahead of the U.S. for quite a while now, both on the legislative front, um, probably most notably in Europe with the U.K.'s uh, 2016 legislation, but also other acts uh, across Europe. And, and it's not in Europe, but Australia has also recently followed the U.K.'s model. There are also you know, efforts underway to use existing authorities from 2014-15, European Investigative Orders, uh, Article 30, is essentially a technical assistance provision across the EU. And uh, the German minister has been making some very, very explicit comments about needing to have providers provide plain text to uh, the authorities uh, when served with a proper you know, court order or warrant. If we follow this through, and, and if the Europeans really do impose this, either in individual nations or, or EU-wide, it kind of creates this weird inversion in which the U.S. will be the more privacy protecting because right now we, we haven't extended Calia to over-the-top providers outside the telecommunications space. Um, and that'll put some real pressure on political alignments. Uh, on the other hand, European privacy advocates have proven adept in the past at uh, managing through cognitive dissonance. So they'll probably find a way to soldier on. But it's certainly yeah, well, probably by saying, well, yeah, the Europeans can do it, but the Americans can't. Uh, that was the, the way uh, most uh, um, cognitive dissonance in Europe gets resolved. I, I am surprised. The predictable bottom line, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Germans, I mean, the Germans used to be the the strongest voice for uh, strong encryption everywhere is a good thing. Uh, and um, that's partly because the interior ministry never weighed in. Um, uh, but now that they're weighing in, they have, it looks like, stepped on the privacy forces uh, and uh, uh, joined GCHQ and, uh, and the French uh, in saying this is, this is going to have to happen. The, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting is we finally, after months of kind of silence, got a 
big unified uh, hostile uh, response to GCHQ's effort to square the circle here by saying, don't break the crypto, just break the uh, the group uh, by opening up groups group chat to allow a ghost participant, i.e. GCHQ, um, uh, where there's a warrant. Uh, and their view was that wouldn't break the encryption. And uh, we just got this long rebuttal to that from both civil society, the, the lefty libertarian groups, and uh, uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, anything surprising in that uh, rebuttal? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, GCHQ's position that it doesn't break the crypto was pretty disingenuous. I, I think you can think of it as a man-in-the-middle attack. And that response pointed out that there was various things that would have to change about the encryption and depending upon which provider it is, including some checks to verify that there isn't somebody else listening in and additional public key added. It seems like a straightforward uh, response. It is a break to the crypto. And I agree with all the things David said about the European position on this. Yeah. The, the one thing that's new, I, uh, ironically, is they a big chunk of the discussion was Oh dear, this will break the bonds of trust between users and Facebook and Google. You know, that used to, to, to resonate. I don't think it resonates much anymore. No, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, not much to add to that. There isn't much trust in our providers. And, you know, people, I, I guess one comment is that people have been moving to the more privacy protective providers. I had a conversation with somebody about this today, like Signal and Telegram. And, you know, those people are going to resist it more and, you know, maybe make themselves more popular as a result. Yeah. Although, you know, I, I guess I do still have trust, trouble trusting Telegram. Uh, their, their code sucks as far as I can tell. And uh, uh, their origins are... Russian by way of Germany, uh, um, and uh, uh, you kind of wonder just how secure that really is. Uh, um, but I, I, I agree with you. People are going to move to Signal. Uh, Signal has made a bunch of choices that make it much harder to uh, to, to put a ghost in the middle, uh, but which also make it kind of less user friendly because you keep getting notices saying so and so has changed his uh, code again uh, uh, and uh, at some point you're going to get a little tired of that let's let, Maury, i want to ask you also about uh, germany's uh, approach to regulating high tech in other ways uh, the uh, cd the, the the i guess it was uh, Germany has now adopted a rule saying there's got to be diversity in your AI systems uh, uh, a, for social media, if I remember right, uh, and there's got to be transparency. I, at the same time, the, the new leader, the, the leader in waiting for Germany's CDU, uh, Angela Merkel's uh, designated successor, has really stepped in it by saying, uh, uh, right after YouTubers um, had cost uh, the CDU its uh, um, role in uh, uh, the EU elections, that she thought social media uh, influencers needed to be regulated more aggressively. What's your uh, sense about where all this is going? Well, there's been a lot of calls in Europe, Germany in particular, for regulation in connection with elections. And the UK um, online harms paper 
uh, largely focused on elections and Cambridge Analytica and so forth and, and the Brexit debate. Uh, I think, you know, the, the comment by Annegret Crump karrenbauer was poorly timed. I mean, she it was clearly political, but she didn't like the criticism by 70 YouTube stars that her party hadn't adequately supported climate change. And it seemed like an, a very much anti-free speech partisan position, not very helpful. Where it's going, um, I think we're going to hear more of this. Um, you know, and I think this will be another place where Europe is, uh, well, Europe will be less friendly to free speech than the United States. Uh, I think that's right. The, 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 all of these regulatory tools aimed at uh, uh, the uh, aimed at uh, uh, Silicon Valley are also aimed at shoring up the establishment uh, uh, political views inside uh, uh, Europe. It's just that uh, shoring up the establishment is more popular in Europe than it has been in the U.S. Yep. Uh, and on your first point about the, you know, the German Broadcasting Authority's regulation of, it, it's a pretty complex set of things. You know, some of it is just diversity in media, but they're also asking media intermediaries, people like YouTube, to disclose their sorting algorithms and how you can change the sorting algorithms and so forth. And this is pretty intrusive content regulation of another sort. Yeah, and uh, remember, we one of the great benefits of uh, uh, getting content over the internet was you didn't have to put up with all those uh, local content rules that said you know twenty percent of everything you show has to be Canadian, and if you're in Canada, and the twenty percent of it has to be French if you're in France, uh, uh, and all those rules just fell away under the onslaught of the uh, of uh, the internet, and now they're slowly being restored. Yeah, regulatory arbitrage has a long pedigree. I, the latest example, I think, is blockchain, where people thought that they could get out of securities regulation through you know, initial coin offerings, that's disappearing. Um, so this is a pretty normal regulatory transition, I think. Yeah. FireEye has a bunch of new details on um, Iran's social media manipulation, its uh, 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 fake uh, personas, Facebook has taken down a bunch of accounts. Uh, 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 David, uh, what uh, what lessons can we draw from all that? I guess three points on this one pretty quickly. First, it's now time we're seeing a lot of foreign governments uh, following suit in the Russian election interference efforts, fake newsing and fake social media accounts and so forth. So like every kind of intelligence idea, it's propagating and the Iranians are trying it. Uh, number two, I do think it, it highlights another interesting point, which is just the relative capacities of the private sector vis-a-vis -vis the intelligence community in spotting and assessing and analyzing these kinds of you know foreign intelligence attacks. Uh, if you just think back, you know, a number of years to a point in which you know NSA really had it seemed a monopoly on a lot of this stuff, both in terms of technology to detect and analysis. Times have really changed, and FireEye and other private sector entities are are looking at these things very carefully. And then third, I just think an interesting note is that these companies, a lot of them have outright policies without exception against fake accounts. Um, I think that, as I've written about before, can have a long-term effect on the ability of undercover police and uh, you know secret agents, knocks 
to create legends or uh, for themselves or even to engage in, you know, direct undercover activity where, where the, you know, 40 year old male FBI agent poses as a 12 year old girl online to catch uh, to catch people. So there's a lot of interesting stuff embedded in this story. But those are, to me, at least the three main takeaways. I, I agree with you that the, the effort to say our neutral position on this is we take down inauthentic behavior isn't going to fully um, prevent Facebook from making value judgments about what should stay up and what shouldn't. Yeah. Alicia, the uh, so we're going to talk about some real law here, uh, an actual uh, D.C. Circuit decision uh, on uh, whether uh, the White House, uh, whether White House employees in the Trump administration can keep using messaging apps that uh, cause the messages to disappear. Uh, what did the D.C. Circuit uh, say, and uh, was it right? So the D.C. Circuit in this case is discussing the White House memo on these vanishing messaging apps. And the White House memo basically instructs White House staff not to use these messaging apps. It says that to the extent that they have um, professional business conducting on these apps, they have to screenshot it and send it to their official email accounts so that it can be preserved in accordance with the Presidential Records Act, which requires that all presidential uh, records be preserved. This is similar to the earlier policy uh, uh, when people were using Gmail that you needed to uh, forward copies of any official stuff that you, used, you did on Gmail to the uh, uh, to your official account so that they could end up in the your, uh, the the archivist's files. But uh, you know that was probably rarely observed, and the idea that people are going to do screenshots of their Snapchat uh, uh, conversations uh, strikes me as implausible. Uh, uh, I, I will ask, Alicia, do you know how to take a screenshot of your Snapchat uh, uh, conversations? I do. So you just... Okay, I don't. That's a totally unfair <laughs> test. It's the old people who don't know how to do it. All right, David, do you know how to do it? Absolutely not. <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> I probably could do it, but it would take a considerable amount of effort. Whereas, you know, the younger people is uh, a little more intuitive. Yeah, and I, I know how to do it. All right, all right, uh, Maury. Well, so uh, if you ever get a White House job, you're going down when the archivist comes uh, looking for that, uh, uh, because they say, "Well, you know how to do it. How come you didn't do it?" Yeah, I think it's kind of crazy because um, so one of the apps listed in the memo is Confide, which apparently doesn't even allow screenshots anymore. So there's a technical barrier to even complying with that as well. But the D.C. Circuit message was basically uh, telling people to comply is is the only obligation uh, under the law that the White House has. And even if that is not, you know, the full compliance is not achieved. The courts are not going to go in and, and, and write a new set of compliance rules. Right. So I feel like the D.C. Circuit kind of dodges by saying this memo is enough in that it instructs compliance and that to the extent that people aren't complying with the law, the, the court has no jurisdiction to order like day to day compliance. So the court can't uh, help enforce the memo. Yeah, actually, I, I think that's 
plausible as a, a judicial position because otherwise they'd be in every day changing their their injunction uh, for individuals. Uh, um, all right, uh, Maury, uh, uh, can you give us a, an update on what the states are doing to imitate GDPR? We, we you know, there's a lot of talk about Washington, about California's uh, CCPA, uh, New York's at work on something. Uh, how how uh, plausible are these uh, these new drafts? Well, really quickly, a few developments. Uh, CCPA in California has been the big one, but there was a proposal to extend the private right of action there from security matters to all rights under CCPA, and that has just failed. Washington was widely thought to be the second statute, uh, second state with a statute, but a bill there that passed the state Senate failed in the state House of Representatives and won't be picked up until next year. New York does seem to be moving forward with an extension of its data breach reporting statute, which extends the scope of breach reporting and extends jurisdiction to anybody who's uh, processing data of New York citizens and adds some cyber specific cybersecurity requirements, so more than just a breach reporting law. So there's lots of movement on these things, and it, it looks likely to continue. It's not quite a landslide yet, but it's, it, it's moving. Yeah, it does seem like uh, you can hear the, uh, the ice on the river breaking up and all of a sudden it's just going to come pouring down the, uh, the river. And um, I, I, I don't think we can finish out the week without talking about the great Google outage uh, uh, yesterday uh, for hours for most of us on the East Coast. Uh, Paul, how bad was it and what does it mean? Well, it was pretty bad. It was much worse for people like some of the companies I work with that have completely migrated to the cloud for all of their uh, interconnectivity, people who use Google Docs, for example, as their main collaborative writing tool. And uh, it was especially bad, I think, for those who have you know, not understood that the cloud is not immune from problems, whether uh, deliberate and malicious or accidental, we, I'm not sure we really know for sure about that yet for this past uh, outage, uh, it effectively uh, takes them offline. And it is a reflection, I think, of the challenges that come from large-scale adoption of uh, cloud-based architectures without giving thought to how that makes uh, essential uh, functionality of your enterprise dependent upon third parties in one way or another. Yeah, what's a surprise here is, you know, Google, yes, they, they're, they're a big cloud infrastructure provider and they rely on their, their own private uh, uh, infrastructure. But I think of them when it comes to selling cloud services as quite distinctly number three to uh, Amazon and, and uh, Microsoft. So if, if the number three provider goes out and it causes that kind of pain, you wonder what would happen if uh, the number one or number two provider went out. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely accurate. And it also suggests, frankly, uh, that uh, we may see, for example, iterations on this in more malicious uh, ways. I, I trust that Google has a really uh, high quality kind of uh, uh, system that uh, is as secure as one could reasonably make it. But we all know that persistent threats uh, are superior to persistent defense in many ways. So I'm, I'm guessing that the next ransomware 
uh, sophisticated ransomware set goes after cloud uh, cloud servers. Oh, yeah, that would be a disaster. Um, all right, uh, uh, three quick stories. Uh, um, uh, there's a great Wall Street Journal op-ed from an FTC commissioner who was appointed by President Trump begging the Ninth Circuit not to uphold the FTC's um, uh, position uh, uh, on uh, uh, Qualcomm's uh, uh, liability for uh, um, uh, antitrust uh, and uh, essentially saying uh, that was the Obama FTC and uh, uh, the Trump FTC is going to have a very different position on this. And I hope that the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, doesn't uh, get too hung up on upholding the uh, uh, the earlier decision. So that's going to be fun to watch. Maury, uh, a Google Assistant had a, uh, um, a, a talking about uh, just how bad, um, uh, I guess it was The Guardian, saying that Google Assistant contractors are in, uh, – sort of sweatshot labor uh, uh, for uh, uh, Google um, and complaining about the number of contractors that Google employs and how little they are paid. Uh, um, I don't know if you followed this story, but it's a kind of running story about just how much uh, of a divide there is between the Google employees and their free meals and the contractors uh, and their quasi-minimum wage jobs. Yeah, I have been following this story and I, I've been working, I work a lot on AI issues and in particular recently been writing a report on deep learning and we've been talking to a lot of people that among you know all the exciting developments in AI and deep learning, it's a poorly kept secret that at every company, most of the work is on the data. You know, the rule of thumb is at least 80 percent. Some people say more. And and that's uh, kind of boring tagging tasks. And all the big players are hiring an army of people to make to make this happen. Basically um, tra training the AI. Yeah. Training the AI, looking at a picture, saying what's in the picture, listening to a, a recording, saying what the people have said, anything like that. And uh, yeah, and, and, and this is this is a. Big change. I, I think uh, there was a time when, of course, it made sense to have a few contractors, but now the contractors uh, enormously outweigh, uh, outnumber the uh, uh, the Google employees at many of these companies. Yeah, and I mean, it's also content moderation is another area that's become a massive thing for online companies, which requires a very large number of, of people doing menial work, and I think a lot of them are contractors as well. <laughs> So unhappiness with this is one more th reason for people to be unhappy with Google and Facebook, uh, uh, Amazon, anybody who does AI. Paul, does that mean that we're going to see antitrust troubles for Google and maybe Amazon? Well, certainly the news seems to suggest that. You know, there's a part of me that thinks that the that the antitrust effort with respect to Amazon is tied up to President Trump's well-known dislike of Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post, but if you throw Google into the mix, it really seems more likely to reflect the fact that there's a growing sense in Washington that Google, Facebook, Amazon have all gotten too big. I'm not sure how successful that'll be. The, the antitrust actions against Microsoft 20 years ago were a resounding failure. I don't know that we'll do any better this time around. So they were a failure in terms of changing 
Microsoft's position in the industries that already dominated. But boy, just like the, the case against IBM, it made management much more conservative about trying to move aggressively uh, using their, their current capabilities and, and dominance into new areas. And you could, you could easily see that uh, uh, with uh, Google or Amazon. And, and the reason to believe that, that there's something serious coming is that the FTC and the Justice Department apparently have agreed that uh, uh, justice will take Google and the FTC will take Amazon. And you don't do that unless you're pretty sure you want to do one of them. I think that's right. If I, if I were, um, well, let's just say uh, antitrust law has been in a very quiet period in Washington. It's not been a robust practice area. Uh, I think a lot of people who have been biding their time since the Reagan era are about to get a brand new boost to their practices. Yes, I, uh, I think that's probably true. Uh, it's been a long, cold Chicago winter uh, uh, for uh, uh, antitrust enthusiasts, and uh, maybe their time is coming around again. Uh, all right. Thanks uh, to all of you. This is great. We're going to end uh, more or less on time. Uh, thanks to Maury Shank. Thanks to Paul Rosenzweig. Thanks to David Chris, And thanks to Alicia Lowe, who did a great job uh, uh, presenting the uh, D.C. Circuit uh, case. This has been episode 266 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget to send us suggestions for um, interview guests at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, if somebody comes on the show that you've suggested, we'll send you a coveted uh, Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, uh, I've been pretty good lately about tweeting out uh, the ideas for stories that we're working on. So uh, please give us feedback on Twitter. That's at Stuart Baker. Uh, if you think we should be covering other stuff or if you've got a particular take on that. Uh, Nick Weaver, when he's not on the show, nonetheless responds on Twitter. So that we know um, what he thinks about all these stories. Uh, uh, and please um, rate the show, leave us a review. I promise I will read uh, practically all the reviews we get, uh, uh, particularly if they're entertainingly abusive uh, and left us five stars despite the abuse. That's the, that's the, 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 the sweet spot. Uh, uh, we've got a bunch of people coming up that I'm gonna be interviewing. Uh, Harvey Rishikoff and Joyce Carell uh, from the intelligence community will be talking about supply chain security. Rob Kanaki and Dick Clark will be talking about their new book on cybersecurity, The Fifth Domain. Uh, and Paul Shar and Greg Allen from uh, uh, CNAS will be talking about China AI and other issues. Uh, finally, uh, I want to thank Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, the, our assistant and editor. Uh, and I, of course, am Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join me again. Uh, next week, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.